before I say what I came up here to say, I just want to just give a word of testimony and, and thanks to God. Uh, I'm, I'm very emotional right now, and it's, it's very emotional. And when I was a young man, uh, when I came to know the Lord, my heart was, was hard, like most of us. And after I came to know the Lord as my Savior and, and then made him Lord of my life, he began to soften my heart. Mm. And, and for years, uh, I would cry, sometimes uncontrollably, uh, at the altar or uh, praise and worship or praying. And, and that was okay because I understood what that was. But for the last few years, uh, that's kind of been cut off for me. And, and I don't know why. I, I think I might know why, but, you know, but I don't know why. But today, but God, today, yes. open mm -hmm. that back up for me. And I cried from the first song to the last. Yes. And, and, it's, and it's good. And I like that. And I, because I, I feel a real connection with God when he allows that, those tears to flow. And it's a great cleansing time. And I thank God for that. Uh, my name's Ed Valentine. I'm 60 years old, been married for 41 years. I have a wonderful wife, two wonderful children, five grandchildren. Uh, I worked 30 years at General Motors Lordstown and retired in 07. And uh, I've, I own Valentine Roofing for 43 years. So we're still working, not retired from all my work, but I, I, do, I do work at uh, Valentine Roofing. From the time I started in church, about 19 years old, God has put a love in my heart for pastors, for missionaries, and for evangelists. And, and I know it comes from God because those things aren't in me mm. to love on someone like that. But he has put a tremendous love in my heart for, for the last uh, 40, 41 years. So 10 years ago, when he touched our hearts to go to Africa, to do some work for him, I, I was okay with that. I love missions, I love missionaries, but I never really went on a missions trip. So I'm 50 years old and, God, and the Lord calls us, group of men to go to Africa to build a church. And I said, oh, that's gonna be cool. So we went, we went to Sierra Leone, West Africa, we built a church. We were scheduled to build two churches that year, but we only built one. So I was, kind of the head of the building project, so I was hugely disappointed in my own spirit. I was disappointed. So we come home, and months, maybe two months later, we got word that the pastor from that church had died. While we were there, he had, a, he had an infection in his leg. And a simple infection, it, it killed him at 40 years old. And, and the, the pain that I felt when he died, it was just unbearable. But these folks live with that. They live with disappointment. Mm. They live with desperation all the time. They had just come through a 12-year civil war where people were tortured and brutalized, and their country was just, was just destroyed for 12 years. So in 02, when that ended, we went in 05, three years later. So we started building churches. And we feel we make contact with these folks. 
They're friends. They're almost like family. They're our brothers and sisters in Christ, but they're friends, and we have a connection with these folks. And we've been there for 10 years. Last year, Ebola hit and devastates the country. Another 4,000, 10,000 people have died in that area from Ebola. So we were not able to go last year or this year because of the Ebola, but we want to go next year. But along the way, we started build, we were building churches. Now we've built 19 churches because that was the first thing the enemy destroyed when they went in was to take out the churches. And if they could take out the churches, they could take out the hope. So our missionary told us when we went there the first year, he says, you are bringing hope. And by the 10th year, they said, you are changing a nation. So from bringing hope to changing a nation, and the Lord had poured into our hearts to, to start water wells. Now we've drilled five water, we are going to drill our fifth water well here soon. We can drill water wells even though we're not there. Because the well drilling equipment is there, the people are there, they're ready to go to drill in water wells for us. We go into schools and hand out the book of hope. And Jesse does it, and I don't want to take anything away from you. Uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of mm. books of hope to Muslims. It's 90% Muslim. They open their doors. Sure, come on in. So we give them a book of hope. We teach them about Jesus, all these Muslim boys and girls. So it's a connection that we're making with this country. And from, from bringing hope to changing a nation. And we don't want to stop. But every, every ministry is driven by money. Prayer and money. We need money for churches. We need money for water wells. And Pastor Jim has been so wonderful over the last couple of years. His interest in the Hope Project is, is, is amazing, and we appreciate that. Thank you, Pastor Jim. So we, we need partners. We need churches to be partners, and that's why we're here. We'd like to partner with you, and someday this mm. partnership works out. You can come with us to Sierra Leone, West Africa, and build churches with us and watch and drill water wells, hand out the Book of Hope, and see little Muslim boys and girls come to Jesus. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Um, I know there are some familiar faces around here, which is good for me because I don't like to be up here. Um, I'm the daughter of a pastor and his <laughs> wife, who's pretty much a pastor. So they preach all the time. and They're really good at that. And everybody just assumes I can get up and speak and I can't. So I'm happy to see some familiar faces. I'm sad there was a baby here that was smiling and clapping. Now she's not here. She was really nice to look at. <laughs> um, but I just want to share with you a little bit about my story and um, how I've come to be a part of the HOPE Project. And just hopefully part of my story will encourage um, some people in here. So that's why I'm going to share it. I grew up in um, Senegal, West Africa, in a French-speaking country. Um, it was stable at the time. It, it wasn't like Sierra Leone. It wasn't going through any war or anything. So I lived there with my parents and my three siblings. Um, but my dad did a lot of work in Sierra Leone. And uh, as a child, I was probably the biggest daddy's girl you would ever find. So if my dad told me his favorite color was blue, then I thought blue was the best color in the entire world. And if my dad said I liked to eat chocolate, then I loved to eat chocolate. And if my dad had a passion for Sierra Leone, that kind of just grew in my heart as well. Mm -hmm. And for years, we were not allowed to travel with my dad in and out of the country because of the Civil War and for safety reasons. So my dad would go in and out on his own um, as a child, I, I can't say that I fully grasped the, um, the fear that he must have felt, um, the danger that he 
was inevitably in when he was in the country, um, I knew that any time my dad was going to Sierra Leone, we were going to eat really good because my parents did this thing where they gave us almost like horse the last meal type thing on us <laughs> so that if my dad never came back, we'd have a really great memory with him. Um, I like that we ate really good. We went to like the best restaurant you could find in a third world um, African country. But looking back on that now, it's kind of scary that my parents had to think that way when my dad would travel. Um, when I was, I, I loved being a missionary kid. My parents were great at letting us know as a family that we were never called, they were never called and then we were tag-alongs. We were called as a family and so they very much involved us in what they were doing. And while my dad's ministry took him to Sierra Leone, I helped um, at the kids' church, um, at the local church that we attended, or we fed orphans in our garage um, a couple days a week and I helped prepare the meals and get the vitamins and make sure they had balanced um, meals so they could grow strong and those types of things. So I always felt very much a part of that. And at nine years old, it's kind of weird um, if you don't, if you haven't experienced it, but I, I felt very much a purpose um, in, in being a missionary kid. When, we were, when I was 14, we came back to America. We were supposed to itinerate for a year and go back to Africa, and I couldn't wait because as a freshman in high school who had lived in Africa for five years, I didn't fit in anywhere. Plus, I was six foot one at the age of 14, so that didn't help anything. Um, <laughs> So when my parents came and told me that um, the board at Highway Tabernacle had asked them the candidates to be the pastors there, I was pretty upset. Um, part of it, <laughs> a small part of it, was because I felt like I, I lost a purpose in my life and how would I ever have, I used to be a missionary kid, I used to be doing missions things, I used to hear about my dad's stories in Sierra Leone and now I'm just going to sit in America, what a waste. Um, the, the other part of it is mm -hmm. I was a teenage girl, so of course I had a lot of emotions. Um, but I do remember saying to my dad in one night, like crying, just tears streaming down my face, but dad, why do you have to be a pastor? So many people in America can be pastors. Nobody in America wants to go to Sierra Leone. Why in the world would that be God's will? And I, and I actually struggled with that um, throughout my high school years. Uh, I got very involved in a youth group, and I, and I felt a sense of purpose again, and I took missions trips to different places with the youth group and um, with our church. But that doubt was always in the back of my mind. Like, how does this make sense at all? There's no missionaries in Sierra Leone. There's nobody going there. And over time, some missionaries did go there. But then, all of a sudden, some men in the church birthed this idea of the Nehemiah team, which became the Hope Project, and, and they decided to go to Sierra Leone. And as soon as that happened, I was just counting down the years until I could go. You know, they always went in November, so I couldn't go until I got out of college. My first year out of college, I signed up to go, I prayed, I raised money, I went, um, and I just, I couldn't wait. Like, this is what I've been waiting for since I was a nine-year-old girl listening to my dad tell me about Sierra Leone. Mm. Um, there are two moments that happened on that trip that I, I, I honestly think I'll never forget in my entire life. The, the moment that the plane landed, I was really excited, like the whole plane ride, there was a team of eight of us, my mom and um, Ed were both on that team and some others. I was excited, everybody knew that. But the moment the plane landed, like the actual second that the wheels touched the tarmac, I was insanely overwhelmed with emotion. And I'm not usually a very emotional person. It just happens when, when God talks about missions and, and that's part of my life. And so I literally sat there crying, tears streaming down my face silently, looking out the window at a country I had yearned to go to for so long. And I've never felt God speak so deeply in my spirit and tell me, you thought I was taking a missionary out of Sierra Leone, but I took a man back to America 
to birth a passion in many people so that this project can touch in a nation in a way that one man never would have been able to do. And um, I, I sat there humbly like, yep, I'm an idiot. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> Good plan. Glad you went with yours. That works a lot better. But I just, I just bawled, and, and I was so grateful. Um, like I was talking about, we do a couple different things there. They build um, uh, churches and schools, but I was on the part of the team that went into different <laughs> schools. And I think that year we honestly gave out like 43,000? 47,000. books of hope. Yep. Um, we went nonstop all day. <laughs> um, there were four of us that would go into the schools, and our, our routine was we'd have a skit that we would do, um, and then somebody would give like a mini sermon, you know, a three-minute bringing the gospel. And then we would hand out a soccer ball because actually at that time I was a teacher and my students were so happy I was going that they donated a soccer ball so we could take a soccer ball to every single school signed with their names so that they knew they would have a connection with the, with the schools that we were in, which I thought was awesome. So we'd give out the soccer ball and then we'd go into the individual classrooms and distribute the Book of Hope. Well, there was a kid on the team with us who was a Bible school student training to be a pastor. <laughs> so naturally he's gonna give the sermon. So this is great, all I have to do is act in a play, pass out Book of Hope, give out a soccer ball, kick it around, great time. After like the fourth elementary school we went to that day, Joe, the, the Bible school student, says, I, I honestly am so worn out from trying to strain my voice because when we would speak, we'd be on a small cement platform outside and there would be hundreds of kids lined up. We don't have a microphone or a megaphone or anything and it's so hot. He was, he was exhausted. He said, I honestly don't think I could physically like speak again. Mm. Can somebody else speak at the next school? And of course, everybody in the car is like, this is a pastor's daughter. So I was like, okay, that's fine. We've been in elementary schools. Little kids are easy. It's great. So I asked the guide, um, you know, what, what school are we going to next? And he answers me. I said, okay, you know, how many students? He said, oh, about 400. I said, okay. He said, they're all boys. I said, okay. He said, they're all in high school. And I was like, all right, we're going to need some prayer, okay? Because <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not ready for this. Um, and, and I know that you say teenage boys, but Remember, these are teenage boys who, as a child, they saw incredible devastation and violence that no child should ever have to see. So when I say boys, they seem like men. Um, and so I walk into this place, and I'm not on a platform and everybody out there. I'm in, like, this auditorium, and they're all, like, rising up. And I just feel completely surrounded and completely incompetent to be able to speak to these boys. I mean, how, how in the world could I relate to them? You know, the things that they've seen, I've never had any idea of what that must feel like. The, the family members that they've lost, I have no idea what to say. And I felt, you know, the whole, I'm praying like crazy. And um, Joe Martin, um, a missionary to Ethiopia now, was on the team with us. And he, I felt him come up and he prayed for me. And um, I just felt the Holy Spirit tell, him, tell me, just, just tell him a little bit about yourself. Well, it's 400 men with stoic expressions looking at an American female. And so I get up and they're just staring at me. And I feel like they're staring right through me. And I just begin to share that, you know, as a child, this is my first time in Sierra Leone, but it's not the first time I heard about their country. And I begin to explain that my dad used to travel in and out of their country, and I always heard about it. Well, their stoic expressions quickly turn into curiosity, and they're, they're now paying attention to me. And then I started explaining to them that I've always loved their country because my dad would come back, and instead of telling me about all the war and devastation that he saw, he would tell me about the beautiful country that they have and the amazing people there. And now they're starting to smile. And I also um, shared with them, I said, you know, I've known about your country since I was nine years old, and I've never forgotten it. 
And I just want you want to ask you today, if, if I've known about it, just one small female in America, how much more has God not forgotten you? And I started to share with them and eventually um, t- telling them, just trying to encourage them, God had not forgotten them or forsaken them despite what their country's um, past had, you know, had told them and, and destroyed and torn apart their families. God did not leave them. He still had a purpose for them and a plan for them. And the reason why we were there is because God never forgot them. And God laid their country on the hearts of many people. And eventually, the hope of God in any situation changes the expression of 400 stoic Sierra Leonean men into joy that could not be contained. And they're actually smiling and laughing with just pure joy and, um, and starting to cheer or whatever. And so I just, you know, I shared that with them. But at that moment, you know, we got in the car and we were kind of quiet and you know, just spending some time reflecting. But it, it was really heavily impressed on me that God calls us to play, all of us, to play some role in his mission. Um, and I think my mom's going to speak a little bit more about that. But for me, what was Im- impressed on my heart is that that role changes for you throughout your life. And as a 9 to 14-year-old girl, my role <laughs> for his mission for Sierra Leone was to be a daddy's girl that soaked up everything that, that my dad talked about and, and to care about the things that my dad cared about and to mirror the heart that he had and the passion that he had for reaching the lost in Sierra Leone. And then when I was in high school, my role was to pray and to give money and to donate because I couldn't go myself. And then when I finally, in 2011, when I graduated college, my role was to go and to speak and to, and to give. And I felt so strongly, like, God, what if I hadn't played those roles well before this moment? I would never be prepared for the moment that you called me for today. If I hadn't sat at my dad's feet fascinated and challenged by the fact that he was willing to sacrifice his life to go into this country, if I hadn't been so invested in that and taken it and soaked it up and put it in my own heart and prayed for it and had a burden for that country as well, I would never be prepared to speak to these people now. And so I just want to encourage everybody, God's not going to call everybody today to go to Sierra Leone. And um, it might be other countries as well. But he might call you to pray, and he might call you to give, or he might call you to just encourage. He might call you at some point to go, but be faithful in what he's calling you in in this moment, because being faithful in this moment prepares you for whatever he's going to call you to next. And um, I'm so happy now to be a part of the Hope Project, um, to be able to hopefully go again and again and again. Um, But I'm thankful that God put smaller roles in my life first and trusted me with that so I could be prepared for the moment that I'm in today. I'm, I'm a pastor's wife, so I am mindful of the time. I am mindful. This keeps falling out anyway. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this. No, you don't have to stand down. I'm not. Ed's a little afraid of me, I think. I'm, I'm grateful. Um, I wasn't raised a Christian. I was raised in another religion that was very guilt-driven. Um, I spent my whole life thinking God was mad at me until I got saved. Literally, if I fell down, oh, I must have done something. God's mad at me. And um, so the whole revelation of God and what he really is when I became saved was a marvelous thing. And I think that God orchestrated all of this, the prayer time, all of it. And like I said, I'm, I'm going to be quick, but I do believe that God has a word for us this morning. And, and Pastor Jim has, has already started to share it. You know, Isaiah 53, 5 says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. 
I believe that there are a lot of Christians walking around today who were bought by the blood and they understand that. But I don't think that they've entered into everything that Christ has purchased for them. And I think that's the greatest tragedy of the American church. And it's what you could learn in the African church. Because out of much destruction and much pain and much despair has also risen great hope, great perseverance, and great faith. People say, Paula, why do you see things on the mission field? My kids went out once with my husband to a country in the Gambia where, where a deaf boy received his hearing. There are just people laying on hands. Why don't you see that? I believe because we've become so self-sufficient and so content to be saved that we're not fully pressing into the wounds that he bore for us. His wounds were for our salvation, and I want everyone to be saved, and his wounds were for our healing but it would behoove us this morning to remember that his wounds were for everyone. God desires every empty seat in this auditorium this morning to be filled because there are still many with literally within the sound of our voice this morning who need to know that his wounds prevail. There was a man, he's called the father of modern missions. His name was William Carey in the 1800s. And, um, you know, the church has its, ups and downs were very cyclical, but I believe, and I'm not just saying it, you know, when I first got saved and I was 16 and the preacher would say, the Lord's coming back soon, I didn't even know what that meant. I was like, look, I'm just happy to be saved. I haven't gotten to Revelation yet. And we've said it, I'll tell you, you've heard it so often, those of you who've grown up in the church, you've quit believing it. But having experienced life in a foreign country and have experienced life here, I'm telling you the signs of the times are everywhere. And we don't have time to wait because the Bible clearly tells us we have to work while it is yet day. Because the night comes when no man can work. And so if you ask me, why am I passionate? I'm passionate because there are people all over this globe who do not have a voice. And Sierra Leoneans are one of them, one of the poorest countries in the world. And I'm passionate about them this morning because I'm not here as a beggar. I'm here as a voice crying out for a people who long, who long, who long to hear the life-saving message of Jesus Christ because his wounds were for everyone. And I believe that in the American church, we are wasting his wounds. And I say that because I believe that we get saved and sometimes that's all we're content to be. And yet he was wounded so that we could be healed and oftentimes we don't even go to him for our healing. Our first call is the doctor. Listen, I learned my lesson in Africa because there is no doctor to call. When we were in Dakar, I'll never, my husband left on a trip to Sierra Leone and when he went back, in the, there was no contact. We had no cell phones. There was, no, there was nothing. We knew that he had gone and we were believing that he was going to come back safely. And uh, he got on a plane to go, and an Iranian doctor called me and said, we believe your son Matthew has cancer. Matthew was very sick the whole time we were in Africa. Now, what do you, what do, you do with that? My husband's gone. I have no contact with him, and, and I, don't, I don't know what to do. I remember standing and crying, and my 16-year-old son, Luke, coming in, and, and he always had to be the man when his dad was gone, and, and praying for me. And African pastors came over to pray, and, and I didn't tell Matt you know, he was nine years old. I didn't say anything to him, but he knew he was sick, and he knew there was something desperately wrong in his body. And that night, when I went up to his room, I found him leaping through his Bible, and I said, Matt, what are you doing? 
He said, I'm reading all of the places where Jesus healed people. Because my son was learning at an early age to enter into the victory that's found in his wounds. His wounds are for all of us. So William Carey in the 1800s realized, you know what, there are a lot of people out there. He was an Englishman who need to hear. And so he went to his, the leaders of his denomination. And you know what they said? And we're guilty of this. They said, let the saving of the pagans be left up to God. Friends, I don't, I don't want to have that attitude because the saving of the pagans is up to us. Whether they're here in America, whether they're at your job site, whether they're your neighbor, or whether they live thousands of miles across the sea. And William Carey refused to be deterred by that, so he went to his friends, and this is what he said to them, and I'll never, ever forget it. He said, if you'll stand with me, if you'll hold the rope, I will descend into the darkness. And wow, that, that's really what it's all about. And what I'm here to tell you today is every single person in this place who's been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ has a place on this rope. You can't refuse to take it. Do you know what our greatest sin is? Our greatest sin is when we withhold from God what's in our power to give him. And you know what he wants? He just wants you. He wants you. And it's within everybody's power in this room this morning to give him your life without excuse, without asking God, what's that going to look like? Listen, when I gave my life to Christ, I remember kneeling at an altar. I remember hearing my first missionary, Greg Mendes, and this is what I said. Lord, I'll do anything you want, but I'll never go to Africa. That's what I told him. Clearly, when I met my husband, I said, do you want to be a missionary? He goes, no, I was dating a girl, and she really wanted to be a missionary, and so I broke that off. No, I feel called to ministry, but I don't want to be a missionary. And so when he got called to the mission field, I said, you lied to me. And you, my friend, married the wrong person. You got this all wrong. You were supposed to marry that other chick. I'm not going. And, and we laughed, but really, for three years, I was the best pastor's wife in the world. I did everything. I cleaned the church. I did children's I watched the nursery, anything. So I didn't have to hear it sit in the service so God could convict me because I knew he'd called my husband. He was calling my husband to take a different place on the rope that I wasn't willing to take. What I'm saying to you this morning is, God wants your life, not conditionally, not like, oh, okay, God, if it looks like this, I'll give you my life. No, he wants your life, and you have a place on this rope. You're either holding the rope so others can descend into darkness. And listen, you're not off the hook, because you might be sitting here thinking, you know what, Paulette? God's never really called me to go to Africa. Good for you, but you've got darkness in your community that God's asking you to descend in. There are places, there are places right here in Youngstown, Ohio that are very, very dark, and God is asking you to descend. Or he's asking you to hold the rope in prayer and financial support for others who will descend. But the bottom line is you have a place on the rope. And if you're not holding the rope, then you are wasting his wounds. Because he was wounded so that all could hear, so that all could know. We went um, the year, actually, that Jessica's talking about, that she went with me. And, and what a blessing that was to be able to go. Because I also never got into Sierra Leone. I made it as far as Ivory Coast, and we were turned back. And uh, they canceled all flights into Sierra Leone. So we literally had to spend the night in an African airport and turn around and get on the plane and go back to Dakar. Uh, my son, my oldest son, my husband, 
and I because it, it was just so up and down during that time period. So I was privileged to be with her the first time she got to see the country that my husband loves. And so there we are, we're in this country, and I preached the whole sermon, Don't Waste His Wounds, at highway before we left, encouraging people to hold our rope. And literally, we were there, we had done all of that ministry, they, they would go into schools, we had teams out building churches, and then I'd preach meetings at night. Now, you have to understand, during that time period, my husband literally most of the time was the only non-African in that country. All of the U.S. Embassy personnel had evacuated. No one stayed. The Sierra Leoneans who had money left because of the brutality of this war. And, um, you know, they, they have names for us. In, in Senegal, we were called two bobs, which we assume meant white person because they only called white people that. But honestly, I can't really tell you what it means. I just know if we walked down the street, they said two bob. And in Sierra Leone, they call us pamuis. So I, whatever, you know, that's, that's their thing. And he would literally be the only Pamui in Sierra Leone. And so they got to know him very well. And he's grown into sort of a legend there among the pastors, really. And people come up, you know Jonathan Moore, because they were just so happy that somebody had not forgotten them. And it, it was just a God thing. God allowed us to be there. God did that. And, um, but my husband is a preacher. That's what he does. And so here am I, and they're like, oh, well, we didn't have a preacher on the team, so guess who got to be the preacher? The preacher's wife. So I was like, okay. I was a nervous wreck. Africans, listen, you can't preach unless you can preach an hour, Pastor Jim. That's just the way it is. They've walked to church. They've walked a long way, and they want to hear the word. And I was a nervous wreck because I'm sitting there thinking, oh, my gosh, this is a pulpit my husband's preached from. The place is packed. They're crammed in, and they're all saying, this is Brother Moore's wife. In fact, when they got up to introduce me, that's how they introduced me. This is Pastor Jonathan Moore's wife. And I'm like, oh, I'm in big, big trouble. And, and there, there were people. There was a woman on that trip, uh, Carolyn Moorhead, who is a saint of God. Let me tell you, on that trip that she took with us, she was a nurse. This was like her fourth trip to Africa. A person just like you. See, don't sit here thinking you're safe. She was just a lay person sitting in a chair just like you. Just like you. Just like a lot of us. And I had preached this sermon on the rope at Highway before we left. And so, so Carolyn knew. Carolyn knew. And I looked down that night. And they had the men separated from the women. Because some of the churches still do that. I looked down that night. But there's our team. The other two women who were with me, Carolyn and Jesse, and then all of our guys on this side. And when I got up to preach, they all did this to tell me they had my rope. Then Carolyn gave me her rope because Carolyn made that trip knowing, knowing that she was very sick. Her body was full of cancer. She refused to go to the doctor before that trip because she knew what the prognosis was going to be, and she knew they wouldn't let her go. And so Carolyn endured that trip, went into every one of those schools with Jessica in severe pain. Her rib was actually cracked from the cancer by that point. Never complained. You would have never known. And there she was, literally holding my rope. And um, 
as that trip went on, our car actually broke down hours away from the capital city and the airport. And we literally got towed that trip, literally one vehicle towing another by a rope. Your prayers work. If I can encourage you with anything today, I want you to, prayer is a tool that the enemy cannot, cannot, cannot do anything against. When his people pray, when God's people pray, Satan is forced to flee. And we don't use it often enough, but I know people were praying for us because literally we were towed a land cruiser. We had a big old land cruiser being towed by a pickup truck for hours and hours and hours and hours into a capital city that is overrun because of the war and it has expanded to four times its land size. It's just there are people everywhere and it's like, I like to drive there because there are no rules. There are no, the biggest car wins. So if you pull out, and I, I like driving in Africa because I have a land cruiser and there, and I was a woman driving in a Muslim country, so they were scared of me. So, so here we are driving, literally towed by a rope, and do you know that rope held, we, they were watching, is one little piece would fray and break off and another little piece would fray. And literally by the time we got there, we had one cord left, one cord that burst as we arrived at our destination. And I knew then that the prayers of the people at home were the reason we had been able to descend into the darkness and see the results that we saw. So today, my challenge to you, my challenge to you, and I've cut pieces of rope. Actually, they were too hard for me to cut. And that's why God says, you know, a three-fold cord is not easily broken. It is not easy to cut rope because it's not one solid piece of material. It's, it's different pieces all combined together, and that's what you and I are. That's what the body of Christ is. We're different pieces woven together, and you can't break that. So my daughter's boyfriend actually cut those for me yesterday um, during the Ohio State game, and, and he did that so I wouldn't hurt anyone else with the knife because it was not a great game. So, <laughs> see, do you know that missionaries can be practical people? We care about things just like you do. We're not, we're not weird or strange we just have accepted, we've just accepted to take up the place on the rope that God has for us. So I want to challenge every one of you this morning to take a piece of rope. Keep it in your Bible, keep it in your war room, keep it in a place where you'll remember it. Not just so you'll remember the Hope Project, because the bigger thing at play here today is that you'll remember that God saved you for a reason and that he doesn't want his wounds wasted and that you have a place on the rope. Whether you're holding the rope so others can descend into darkness or whether you're actually doing the descending yourself, you have a place on the rope. Thank you, Pastor Jim. What do you think? He is good. Um, well, I'll bring you light to that scripture. Uh, Paul says it um, this way. 
He says, I have planted in Apollos waters, mm -hmm. and God brings the increase. And so everybody has a place in, in this journey. I don't know if, I, if everybody remembers years back when I mentioned about uh, having a 5K, doing a 5K to, to dig a well someplace. And at that time, I didn't have any connections at all. I just knew that we were supposed to do something. Because you can't drink a... I, I was just, anybody just been in a shower and all of a sudden God just reveals something to you? I know that's an odd place. But in that shower, as I let the hot air or hot water pour down over me and I saw it just run into the drain, I realized that I could sit there and I can enjoy that shower, hot shower, with water that I took for granted. All these years, you know, you sit there and you do it. And man, I like hot showers. How about you and I? You know, you sit there and you just bake. And you're like, oh, this is so good. And then realize that we're going to have in tomorrow a team that dig wells to villages that have none. Literally, they would send young girls to go get the water. And I don't even know if they're able to go to school because their job was to go get water. And they would go down. Young girls would go down rather than go to school and put these big things on their heads full of how many gallons they could carry. And they would literally walk how many miles? Oh, pastor, sometimes six. We, our last place where we went in Coindu, we took a team. We were fortunate to have a vehicle. We stayed in a cement brick building, no electricity and no running water in this village. And we drove four miles to a river to literally collect all of our water in big jugs. And that's what you drink. That's what you bathe out of. Now, we knew we were going into that situation. So we brought water with us from the city. They had 14 hours to go 100 kilometers, okay, because the roads are not roads. They don't have that, they don't have that luxury. So they are walking. Literally, they can spend six hours a day just to procure enough water for one day and carry it on their heads. You see these nice figurines? Let me tell you, it's not as lovely as that wooden figurine.